This is a special podcast by American Bankruptcy Institute to analyze the third and last opinion on bankruptcy law handed down in the current term by the U.S. Supreme Court. The case was called Lamar Archer and Coffering versus Appling, decided on June 4, in what amounted to a essentially unanimous opinion written for the court by Justice Sonia Sotomayor. The case dealt with a question of non-dischargeability under Section 523A2 of the Bankruptcy Code. There was a split of circuits with the 11th and 4th circuits on one side and the 5th and the 10th on the other. Our analysts on today's podcast have been chosen for their special expertise in consumer law. First, we have the Honorable Michael B. Kaplan, a U.S. bankruptcy judge in Trenton, New Jersey, for the last 12 years. Judge Kaplan is also, by the way, a teacher or professor at the Rutgers University School of Law. And notably, within just the last uh, day, he was quoted in an extensive article in the Wall Street Journal dealing with student loans, a hot topic in the bankruptcy arena. Our other analyst is a real mover and shaker in the bankruptcy community. I refer to Alan Beckett, a managing partner at her firm Beckett & Lee in Malvern, Pennsylvania. Ms. Beckett is the president-elect of ABI, and she will assume office in April of 2019. Alan also, by the way, is a member of ABI's commission to recommend amendments, changes, improvements in federal bankruptcy law, and the good Lord willing, the commission and Allen will submit their recommendations to Congress around the end of the year. I am Bill Rochelle, ABI's editor-at-large. The circuit split resolved by the Supreme Court in the Lamar Archer Coffin case dealt with the consequences of lying about your financial condition. Specifically, Section 523A2B says that a materially false statement respecting the debtor's financial condition must be in writing to provide grounds for non-dischargeability of the related debt. Everyone agrees that you can lie with impunity about your overall net worth, and that lie will not result in non-dischargeability unless it was made in writing. But the circuits were split about non-dischargeability if the debtor lies about only one asset. Two circuits held that a lie about one asset is not a misrepresentation about financial condition and therefore can result in non-dischargeability. Two other circuits held the opposite and said that a lie about even one asset is still a lie about financial condition and must have been made in writing before leading to a non-dischargeable debt. So, Judge Kaplan, I would like to address the first question to you, sir. Could you please tell us what was the holding of the Supreme Court in resolving this circuit split? Well, good morning, Bill and Alan, and all those listening. Uh, The decision... Uh, Justice Sotomayor's opinion, uh, which was 
result was agreed to by all of the other justices was pretty straightforward. The court merely held that a fraudulent statement concerning a single asset may constitute a statement concerning the debtor's financial condition, and thus that statement must be in writing in order to be determined non-dischargeable under 523A2B. That's the straightforward holding. Uh, you touched well, on it before. The, the, the cynical uh, outlook would be that the Supreme Court reaffirmed that a debtor can lie, exaggerate, distort, or fabricate, or otherwise misrepresent anything related to his or her ability to pay, as long as it's not done in writing. But maybe that's too far too cynical. That's pretty much what she said. (laughs) (laughs) Let me me ask uh, both of you a question. You know, many courts, and I especially think that was the ones who were overruled by this decision, just don't like debtors who lie. They figure that bankruptcy court is for honest debtors, and, you know, many judges just don't like liars. So, therefore, that sort of uh, pushes you toward a conclusion that if you lie significantly about an asset, it should lead to a non-dischargeable debt. So, let me ask either or both of you this following question. Did this decision surprise you? Well, uh, I'll start off. Uh, It didn't surprise me because, to me, the decision followed other cases uh, handed down by the Supreme Court in the bankruptcy area, which were intended to lessen the burden on consumer debtors. Uh, I look, look, for example, to the Till decision from several years back, dealing with the proper cram-down interest rate. That issue, which was litigated in every court, required extensive, costly litigation efforts by consumer debtors and placed significant burdens on the courts. We, as a judge of the trial court, we were faced in having to uh, determine competing versions of uh, the proper interest rate, and it called for evidentiary hearings, which called for expert testimony. It got costly and time-consuming. And in a way, I think this just follows the same path, uh, the decision and the and in the Lamar case that uh, in essence the Supreme Court looked to ease the burden on trial courts because without a writing the courts are left with having to decide he said she said type disputes where even in the even in this case the uh, uh, debtor defendant Mr. Appling contested what he actually had said and whether the law firm at issue for the services that they were rendering, had relied on the statement and the content of the statement and the timing of the statement. And it was all oral, so it came down to credibility issues, which, again, are time-consuming and expensive and burdensome on the trial courts. So I think it's just... that's what the trial courts are supposed to be doing, Mike. They're supposed to be uh, adjudicating matters of credibility, and and I find it... um, I, I'm not sure I agree with you because that the, the Supreme Court was trying to make anything easier for anybody. Um, I think they were just sticking to a strict reading of the statute. You know, in, in coming to this conclusion, it's very clear that a statement has to be in writing if it's regarding the uh, financial condition. And so they started looking at the word respecting in the statute and parsing that out as they're 
they're known to do, and they just recently did it in the uh, Henson versus Santander case. So I don't know that there was as much thinking behind behind that one in regard to making things easier for, for trial judges. Uh, but what is interesting is, uh, Bill, I, we, if anyone uh, listening has listened to your podcast uh, on this, or uh, your webcast on this case, the first thing you said was that the Supreme Court has uh, determined that bankruptcy courts are not courts of equity because they didn't do what you might consider to be the right thing in this case or what some people might consider to be the right thing, which kind of circles back to uh, the Wall Street Journal article that you just referred to earlier uh, in this podcast, where which discusses the ways in which bankruptcy judges are, are trying to enact uh, creative uh, legal ways of assisting debtors with their student loans, demonstrating that bankruptcy courts still think that they are courts of equity. So I would hate to see um, a lot of that undone when it, when well, it filters sure. up to the Supreme Court. I'm not sure we're courts of equity. I think more and more we're becoming courts of the end result trying to uh, reach a result that we think is appropriate uh, using uh, the broad and uh, language of uh, of a statute or ambiguous language uh, to uh, further the, the underlying goals, which are fresh start uh, for the honest debtor. Uh, so, uh, in, in part, you're correct. Uh, I think uh, uh, the bankruptcy courts in general have become a bit more courageous. Uh, in their efforts. Also, a goal of repaying your creditors. So I, we, keep, we keep forgetting about that goal. Yeah, you kind of got to go. <laughs> you kind of got to think about them too. And and one thing that was was kind of disappointing about this is I I understand where the court was coming from uh, by saying that if it's a statement about your financial condition. That's probably going to be a statement you're going to give somebody who is going to lend you money, um, which is different from 523A2A, which is more of a common law fraud uh, transaction. So when you're dealing with creditors, a creditor would be wise to get any type of documentation uh, that they can regarding the debtor's assertions of their ability to pay. Um, and creditors do that all the time, of course. But this wasn't really a creditor. This was a law firm, a law firm assisting a client. And, you know, accepting the debtor's representations that they were going to get a tax return, which they did, uh, and that they were going to use it to pay the debt, which they did not. Um, it, it's kind of a shame, I think, for this law firm to uh, extend that their services to the debtor and then get hit with with this decision that it wasn't about their that it wasn't in writing, the statement wasn't in writing, whereas if it was a common law fraud, uh, that would not have been dischargeable. You know, Alan, you, you put your fingers on something I think we ought to focus on for a second, because we haven't laid out much in terms of the facts of this particular case. It involved an individual who essentially made a lie about an income tax return that he expected to receive in the future. And what he would do with the proceeds of that tax return in the future. Does the fact that this was a lie about something that he was going to do in the future weigh into this occasion, uh, uh, situation? If so, how? 
Well, part of the the decision that troubles me may be the emphasis on the writing element, uh, and that uh, I'm afraid that creditors will start focusing on simply having a writing as being the end all when there's other criteria. Let's let me throw out something. Let's say in this case, Mr. Appling had sent an email, which is a writing, to the law to, to his lawyer saying, "Please hang in there and continue to represent me. I'm expecting a tax refund of a hundred thousand dollars, and I will pay your invoices as soon as I receive the refund," which may be close to what he actually said. Now, it's a writing. It certainly concerns his ability to pay. As a result of this decision, you can argue. It should be non-dischargeable under 523A2B. But what if he had just sent in the same another email and he had just said, uh, "Guys, please hang in there. Continue to represent me. I'll pay you as soon as I get my tax refund." I don't see a lot of difference in those two emails. Yet what I just indicated, the latter, is simply a promise to pay in the future. And courts for decades have been. Uh, confirming that a promise to pay in the future is not the type of representation that can support a claim for non-dischargeability. So it's troubling. I think you have to go more into the content. Uh, It's got to be more than simply a promise to pay. Isn't that what a credit card um, is, a promise to pay? Use your credit card and you're promising to pay in the future uh, to the creditor, and then you don't pay it, and that's that that promise to pay by using your card is a is a, a statement, a promise to pay. Now, granted, that's under A2, A2A, but I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that any promise to pay in the future is always non-dischargeable, of course. If it's fraudulent, a fraudulent statement like this guy's was, then it can be non-dischargeable. But I think you really hit on a point, Mike, is that a lot of creditors, institutional creditors, not this law firm, but institutional creditors are relying heavier more heavily on electronic communication and texting and and emailing. And I, I kind of wonder how that's going to impact this type of analysis. Is Are we going to be litigating over, as you said, what actually constitutes a writing? What does think- constitute a writing? <laughs> yeah, let, let's, let's get into that. I mean, what you're starting to say, both of you, is that, as usual, when the Supreme Court answers one question, they raise many more questions than they resolved. So what is a writing? Um, if I fill out a form online, but it doesn't have my signature on it, it just comes from an email address that purportedly is mine, is that a writing? Alan just indicated when you uh, charge on a credit card, it's a representation you're going to pay and have the ability to pay uh, now, is the signature on the receipt the writing? Uh, and what else, as so you said, can be a writing? Uh, are tweets going to be considered writing? Texts? Emails? And don't forget, <laughs> when was the last time that you filled out a credit card application on paper and not, in, not online? You don't sign it, but you send it in, and it can be converted to a writing by having it printed out. Um, and, and these are the kind of things that we have to really think about when we're going to talk about a, a very sort of old-fashioned term as, as a writing. 
in these situations, in, in typical creditor-debtor relations and, and sort of collections and that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, I'm waiting for the case where you know, the, the debtor uh, includes a photo uh, of, him, of him or herself on a yacht on Facebook. Is that going to be the writing that someone relies on? I guess we may go Statement to... Statement financial whether... condition. Look at me on the yacht. <laughs> well, maybe it has to be reasonable, the reliance under 523A2B. Well, uh, Alan, you, you represent folks on both sides of the street, uh, lenders as well as, as debtors. Do you see that lenders could use this decision to enhance their ability to get declarations of non-dischargeability? Well, I'll, I'll correct you in that I, I don't represent debtors at all, um, but I do represent creditors in non-dischargeability actions such as this. And we have always, sort of in the credit card context, we've always looked to the charges made on, on the account, the actual charges uh, under 523A2A, a fraudulent representation of your intent to repay. If we have documentary evidence of an application which contained, for example, uh, income, housing, uh, that sort of thing, what your job is, we have proceeded also under A2B uh, using that document. So absolutely, but that's not anything new, I don't think, in the context of typical creditor-lender uh, transactions. Um, that's why... You know, I'm a little, I'm a little sorry for this law firm here because they're being treated as sort of an institutional creditor who should know better than to give somebody money without getting something in writing. Well, you know, on the other hand, think of it this way: we sort of begin with the assumption that it's debtors who lie, but cannot creditors be as prone to lie as debtors, especially when as Judge Kaplan was saying it's a he said, she said situation. The language in 523A2B was put in for, to uh, address an abuse not by the debtors, but by the consumer lending industry that were preparing uh, financial statements on behalf of the debtors as part of applications and how the debtors just sign off. Uh, and uh, Congress at, at the time, and the Supreme Court noted it, in the de- in the decision, uh, used uh, 523A2B to t- try to clamp down on a, a a improper practice by the consumer lending industry at the time. Well, certainly, certainly the the lenders would be you know well advised uh, you know to get things in writing certainly. Um, my point was just that that not everybody is a sophisticated lender, and certainly this law firm, you know, would have been smart to get something in writing as well. Um, so, so I mean, I really understand the point of it, uh, but you know, it's it, it's it's a tough pill to swallow to have a debtor outright lie, uh, obtain services from a, an attorney, especially since I'm an attorney, uh, and then have those discharged. Well, let, let me ask you both a hypothetical. Let's say that somebody is behind in payments, the lender writes an email and says, please tell me when and how you're going to pay this debt. The borrower, soon-to-be debtor, replies and says, "Um, 
I have a tax refund coming in three months, and I intend to use that to catch up on my debts. What about that? Does that check all the boxes, and can that lead to non-dischargeability, that exchange of emails? I think under this decision, the most recent decision, it does, uh, because Justice Sotomayor uh, placed emphasis on the broad interpretation of the concern of the term respecting financial condition, uh, meaning it's the equivalent of related to or concerning finances, and, and in effect, related to the ability to pay. The language you just read certainly speaks of an ability to pay as a result of the tax refund. It's in writing, and it's intended to have, assuming you can establish that the debtor intended to have the creditor rely on that email to hold off action, uh, I think it falls well within uh, 523A2B. Except let's not forget the last part. The last part, excuse me, that the debtor made that representation with the intent to deceive, meaning at the time he promised to use that tax return, he didn't intend to do it. There could certainly be intervening events that caused the debtor to divert that money somewhere else. So the creditor still has to prove an intent to deceive. And, you know, it could be as simple as circumstantial, uh, but no debtor is going to testify or agree that they intended to deceive. So so it will have to be circumstantial, uh, but it's still an element that that plays into this question. So we're back to the contested evidentiary hearing that I thought we were going to avoid. (laughs) So I'm still going to have to take credibility to make credibility determinations. Well, another question, too. What about... What about reasonable reliance on someone's promise about what their financial condition will be in the future? Can you really reasonably rely on that? Well, that certainly in a, in, a, in a lawyer-client relationship where there may have been uh, a, a long-standing relationship, you could get reasonable reliance out of a history of, of invoices and payments. Um, that's one of the things you would look at. Um, you know, so again, it's going to be uh, another fact question as to whether the creditor's reliance was reasonable. Or should the court expect the, the creditor to have taken some other action, such as requesting a copy of the tax return, requesting uh, some other indicia that there is an actual refund out out there? Uh, so, to, to really uh, satisfy the reasonable reliance. Uh, yeah, maybe that's something tough, else is needed. You know, practically or speaking, for that. You, you, you might be right, uh, Judge, practically speaking, but I, I just can't see that, you know, really playing into too much of a um, an attorney-client relationship if there has been a history of, you know, good relation and good prompt payment. Um, so there, that, again, plays into your reliance. My concern is also the broad scope of the assets or the condition being described. It's easy when we speak of a $100,000 tax refund. What if the debtor had said, I'll pay you uh, within a couple of months because I'm getting a second job or I'm getting, uh, 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 I'm anticipating an inheritance? 
it's a little broader uh, as far as proper reliance, but also are we back to simply a promise to pay, which should be dischargeable? I, I would call, I would base that solely on reliance. I mean, on reliance and, and intent to deceive. That's a tough one when somebody makes a general statement like that without, you know, dollar amounts or um, deadlines. So that that would be a very hard case, I would think. Yeah. Well, you know, also when you're talking about promises about what you're going to do with assets in the future, merely speaking about and representing your assets is one thing, but doesn't the creditor also really need to know about what the other liabilities are. Because, yeah, you may have an asset that comes in in the future, but how overwhelming are the liabilities? And the the creditor, if the creditor wants to tie up that future asset, seems to me like to be sure that your name is on the future asset, you need to somehow get a security interest. And if you don't, Maybe you're out of luck. Well, I think a lot of institutional lenders would probably do that. Uh, but again, we're talking about a law firm providing personal services. So, yeah. you know, unfortunately, they do that at their peril. Yeah. Well, and also, we're all often dealing with fairly small debts. And the expense of getting a security interest can be pretty significant. And it's interesting, Bill, you did bring up the fact that liabilities come into the equation. It's not just assets. So that the debtor who says to a relative or a good friend who is seeking to borrow money, uh, I've got you know, no mortgages on my home, but who actually does, that statement right there has to be in writing. Yep. Because right. the liabilities touch on his ability to pay. Even, well, even though it's a blatant fraud. You know, you all have told me something. I thought that this decision by Justice Sotomayor was a debtor-friendly decision, but I got to tell you, you all are now making me think maybe it's just as friendly for creditors as it is for debtors, because it sounds to me like, from what you all say, creditors can figure out a way to use this decision for their benefit. Listen, I want to thank the both of you, uh, Judge Kaplan, uh, Ms. Beckett. We very much appreciate the time you have taken to educate the audience as well as me. Thank you. Thank you. The audience needs to know that this podcast and many others are available on the ABI newsroom, which you can access easily on the ABI website. Well, until something else important happens, uh, uh, this is Bill Rochelle signing off for the ABI, and we will see you again sometime soon.